Welcome to CISO's Insiders Podcast, powered by GRC Consulting. In this podcast, we'll be interviewing leading CISOs and security leaders in the industry for light, eye-level conversations. Here, they share advice and tips, talk about their biggest accomplishments and failures, favorite drinks, key influencers, and much more. We encourage you to walk away with at least one insight that will help you better yourself or your business. Thank you for joining us, and we hope you enjoyed today's episode. For more content, please check us out on social media. Welcome, everybody. And today I'll be speaking to Cesar Cabral. Um, I'm hoping I pronounced it correctly. Um, Cesar is uh, actually the CISO and head of IT infrastructure over Genesis Capital. Genesis Capital is, a, is, a, is one of the leading loan providers for the nation, nation's top professional developers of residential, multifamily, and mixed use of real estate. Uh, your, the diversified uh, product that Genesis Capital offers uh, provide, provide a line and sharp swift execution that enables you to cater to a broad range of investors and developers. Uh, and I know that before you held this role, you were the SVP of, uh, of Community Bank. Prior to that, you spent, I think, eight years as a VP, uh, Senior System Manager of Union Bank. And, and prior to that, you, you held a, a few consultant and engineering positions. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I would uh, be more than happy if you could jump in and introduce yourself. Great, Ben. Thanks. I really appreciate it. I'm glad to be here. Yeah, I've been with, I currently hold the CISO position at Genesis Capital. That was a recent promotion. I started as the head of infrastructure and also information security um, engineer when I started. Uh, Prior to that, I was mostly focused on infrastructure, uh, data center, as well as cloud infrastructure support, a little bit of data warehouse um, and data data engineering work as well. Right now at Genesis Capital, we're, you know, we're a, a subsidiary of Goldman Sachs. And um, although I report to the executive committee at Genesis Capital, I do hold a weekly, I'm, I'm sorry, a monthly meeting with the, um, with the, my constituents at uh, uh, Goldman Sachs to talk about uh, current security updates and status and uh, talk about projects and um, how we're doing as far as security postures, if we have any incidents or events that we need to report, as well as I walk through uh, security um, you know, re- dashboards to talk about our performance, a bunch of KPIs to see how we're achieving our goals in InfoSec. Okay, thank you for that. And yeah, I, I wasn't aware that uh, it was a subsidiary of Goldman Sachs. Uh, so, uh, and you know, I'm assuming so that you might have some experience then with a decentralized approach for information security, which could be, uh, I presume, could be more challenging than, than a centralized approach. Uh, but yeah, maybe we could, uh, we could learn a bit about that going forward in this discussion. Great. Great. So I, I always like to, to, to start with a couple of icebreaker questions here. Uh, if, you, if you're willing to share about your marital status and favorite drink, that would be great. Sure. Yeah, I've been, I've been married to, um, uh, married for 27 years now. Uh, I met my wife back in college and um, we just recently celebrated our 27th. Um, so happily married. We have three, three nice. boys together. Yeah, most of them, actually all of them are, two of them are in college. One is already um, working in the technology field. And um, she's, uh, she's a nurse for 25 years now. So, wow. um, yeah. And so uh, you can imagine given the current situation with COVID, that was a, a, a tough tough situation to manage, but she's, uh, she's a veteran and um, she's doing well. And uh, my favorite drink is a tequila. I'm a tequila drinker. Really? Just to, to be transparent, the last, the last drink I had was back in um, Thanksgiving in 2020. I have not had a drink since then. 
wow, wow, that's like what five months then from now? Yeah, yeah, and I'm I'm just an occasional drinker. I don't drink all the time, and um, given my age, I'm I'm just trying to be more careful and trying to limit what my body takes in. Yeah, you, you try to limit your intake of, of alcohol. Yeah, yeah, Got and it. red meat and whatever else is not good for 50-year-olds out there. Uh, yeah, tell me about it. Well, I think that's a totally separate discussion. You know, uh, I changed my diet tremendously for uh, probably 12 months ago, so I, I can relate to that. Although I, I do love red meat, but I do try to, to limit the quantities that I intake. Right. Uh, great. So uh, let's dive right in. Uh, so I always like to, you know, to learn more about the individual I'm, I'm speaking to, and I, I, I try to understand more about the career path. And if there's one thing that you wish you had known about your career before you began it, what would that be? Yeah, good question. Before beginning my career, I wish I'd known that it's really important to to work in different industries and not get locked in in one industry, like uh, financial or banking or investment for that matter. I mean, it's a good industry to be in. However, if you want to diversify and broaden your skill set, um, I think it's good for people to get exposed in different industries. I mean, technology, info security um, adds value to any industry out, industries out there. However, it's also good to know about the business processes, uh, business operations, and the different strategies and different type of businesses so that you're more, you're more diverse. You know about the technology, you know about the six solutions that, that supports it, and then um, and, and the type of info security risks and their postures that um, you, you'd be familiar with. For example, being in the banking and investment industry for 20, 25 years, I have no background in healthcare. It'll be good to know what type of controls and policies you need to be put. You need to put in place for um, you know, healthcare and HIPAA and those type of regulations that you need to work with, or even manufacturing. You know, there's huge manufacturing opportunities out there. It's good to know the type of uh, applications and business processes that you need to support from an infrastructure standpoint and infosec standpoint. And I wish that. I diversified a little bit early on in my career, but I have no regrets. I mean, it's good to be in this in this environment. Yeah, and and you know what that that's a great answer. But let me let and let me just chime in here. So you know, working in a consulting capacity for probably the last twenty one years. I can totally understand what you're talking about. And, you know, I think it's more than just understanding the business and the business processes for a specific industry. I think it, it it's, uh, you know, it's more than that. It might, it, it's like, you know, uh, to learn more about the ecosystem it, itself. So anything from like vendors, supply chain, uh, you know, what's, what's at the core in terms of data? Do you handle, you know, with PII, financial information, PHI? Mm -hmm. and, and as you mentioned, you know, you, you have uh, various aspects to consider starting, you know, in compliance laws and regulations, vendor management and, and so on. So, so, Personally, I do agree with that sentiment, and I think that's one of the, uh, I would say, one of the, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, what, one of the benefits of being a consultant is that you're exposed to all those industries. You, you have the ability to tap in and actually learn about those. Right, right. Yeah, I feel like you're at a disadvantage if you're stuck in one particular industry, because that's what people are looking at when they're looking at your expertise, whether it's a, it's a job opportunity or a consulting engagement, they're looking at your portfolio and say, this individual has worked in the financial industry. We can't possibly, he can't possibly come in and provide value in healthcare or manufacturing or technology. Um, funny story, well, interesting story, transitioning from community bank to um, Genesis Capital, I was looking at different industries because I wanted to have a different perspective. I wanted to change. And you go to robotics, you go to healthcare, you go to manufacturing, even tech. I felt like I didn't get a chance at all because 
that's been my background for the past 20 years. And then there's this misconception about working for a bank. It's slow, it's bureaucratic, and there's a lot of policies and procedures that don't necessarily fit a small tech startup, for example. So those, those are the kind of things that you would face um, later on in your career. Yeah, yeah. And you, you only learn about it uh, like as time goes by and, and this is when you understand that, you know, right. if you've done something differently. Mm-hmm. Uh, great. Okay. Um, so moving on to the next question, what would you say your biggest failure was and what, and what did you learn from it? Yeah, very good question. Um, I have to, if I have to say, I have to pick one, I would say um, my, when my wife and I, when I helped her establish a uh, radiology business and transcription, and I think that if, um, if I have to say the biggest failure would be that. Um, it, was a, it was a challenging situation because it was the first business that she, she started, and um, we didn't know about um, how to start a business, how to finance it, but I thought we had a great idea. Uh, when uh, when she first thought of the business, uh, she wanted she wanted to help a a, a small hospital uh, in the suburbs that, that did not have any radiologists uh, in house, but they have a huge community. And what was happening was, you know, they would um, they would send anyone who's had um, injuries like broken bones or sprains uh, or any you know any chest pains to a uh, another hospital um, that about three four hours away uh, for for uh, you know for a radiologist to look at them and the the pitch was easy and it was basic we would go in and we would provide the equipment the infrastructure um, in 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 return we'll provide the radiology services as well as the transcription services and the coding services and we did the financials and it looked really good there's enough enough patients based on the historical numbers that we were getting from the hospital um, and we were taking on the risk basically me and my wife decided to um, use our funds to um, pay for the equipment and um, for the first few months everything was going well and and um, they didn't realize that hospitals can file for um, bank- bankruptcy restructuring basically locking up the um, you know the the investments that we've made, and we we had to continue with our operations because we had little clinics that we were providing services to, and at that time we can't just stop our services. We can't just tell our radiologists that you know we're not doing the service anymore because it's going to affect the other customers that we had. Long story short, we ended up um, coming up with the funds to be able to continue operating with the rest of the clinics while the hospital stopped paying us for for the services and ended up um, um, getting the equipment back and selling it for uh, pennies to the dollar. Mm, okay, that that's definitely you know an uncommon story, I think. But uh, do, do you feel you learned something from it that helped you along the way? Then I did. Yeah, well, probably the biggest uh, um, lesson lesson learned is not to take on the risk yourself, right? So, if you believe in the numbers, you have the financials. Typically, you would seed the business and start it at a, at a what you're comfortable with, not betting not betting the farm, so to speak. And then, if if you truly believe that there is the you know two three year financial model that you're going to be getting revenues, then you would probably get fundings from like investors, angel investors or um, other debtors and talk about series A and B. But that's one thing I learned. If I ever, if I decide to start another business in the future, I'd go through the, the common um, funding process. Yeah. And in other words, I think, you know, someone smarter than me, it said, fail small, fail fast or fail fast, fail, fail small. And, right. you know, and owning a business and operating a few businesses, I can tell you that I've, I've, I've lost a bunch, but I've always tried to, you know, to limit that, to limit those losses. And, you know, coming from the risk management industry, I'm, I'm sure that, you know, if you've done that today, you might have done, uh, you, mu- you might have done it a bit differently. 
but but in any case you know i think uh, as you mentioned like any every failure is 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 a is a growth for opportunity as well right yeah we just try we just need to try and make those as harmless and as painless as possible right exactly right okay uh okay so touching on your biggest failure what would you say your biggest accomplishment was yeah that would have to be um one of my proudest moments is to uh having achieved uh, my master's at Claremont Graduate University back in 2014. Mm. Um, it's a big deal because I'm the very first one in my family to have achieved a, a master's in the U.S. Uh, oh. So for me, that's a, that was a, a very, very important milestone. Mm -hmm. So yeah. that was like a badge of honor for you? Well, for me, and also, you know, it's important because I... I um, I like to show the family, right? Be like a role model uh, to my kids, to my nephews and nieces, and my cousins. Um, so it's a it's a proud moment. It uh, I represented the family um, that day when when I uh, when I received my diploma. Nice. You know, I, I actually, I, I was also the first one in my family to achieve uh, a bachelor degree. I, I didn't go all the way to MBA back then, but I, I was like the first one to graduate out of college. Uh, and, and you know, I, I think I think both of us, we, we come from, I wouldn't say similar backgrounds, but I think both of our families, you know, have migrated from one country to another. Mm -hmm. and, and I think that maybe goes back to the reason uh because for example like my father and my mother they didn't graduate they didn't go to college or universities and and and, and i'm assuming based on what you just said that uh, it's a similar story with you and you know my 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 dad he he moved to israel when when he was a teenager and i, and I think you also mentioned that you moved to the u.s as a teenager yeah that's correct. i was 14 when i migrated here okay Got it. So yeah, yeah I can definitely and understand. It's story. not an easy age to to um, <laughs> to start no. a new life, but I can only imagine. Actually, not just imagine. I saw how my parents had to adjust culturally um, when we moved here in 1986. It's quite a while now, but yeah, it was very much. Um, you know, you've read the stories of early immigrants when they came here and the challenges that they had to face, not knowing the system. There's culture shock, um, and we, I, we we felt that um, it, it was a definitely it, it was a challenging situation. But hindsight 2020, if we would have stayed, uh, it would have been a, a more difficult situation because lack of opportunity and financial troubles and all that that comes coming from you know, comes coming from a third world country. Those are the things that you face. That's why you know, I'm very happy that my parents. Uh, persevered and brought us here yeah and you know I, I don't i don't know your story but i i can only imagine they did it for you for the kids so you know so they were w willing to take the hardship for in order for you to have a better life I, i'm, I'm right. just assuming here but uh you know it's, it's not that a stretch yeah that that is that that's you're right on there okay um so if there was one advice you could give out to someone who's wanting to pursue a career similar to yours, what would that be? It's a good question. I would, I would say um, establishing a relationship with a mentor, seeking a mentor. And it isn't going out there and say, hey, can I ask you to be my mentor, right? That's, I feel like a mentor-mentee relationship is something that happens naturally. And it's a you know, it's, it happens progressively, right? You see people with experience out there, you know, look for people that you look up to, listen to them. You know, if they have a podcast or they go through, you know, and they speak at conventions or, you know, they, they um, even if they don't speak, you know, you maybe have a cup of coffee with them and just try to establish that relationship. I think it's really important to have a mentor early on in your career as Speaking of mentorship, it isn't a one-way street. What I learned is it's really important for you to give something back, reciprocate, and that could be as easily as showing potential and learning from the conversations that you're having with your mentor, right? It isn't just asking questions and getting their feedback and running away and not 
establishing the relationship. I think it's important to have that relationship long-term, not just short-term. So showing them that there's value in some of the things that they're, you're learning from them and that they're providing you and executing on those and providing feedback and what works and what doesn't work. I think those are key when it comes to mentor-mentee relationships. And based on your answer, I imagine you had a mentor. Did you want to mention some of those or was it a specific individual, a few of those? There's a few, a couple of individuals that I've worked with and I'm very thankful to have worked with them. Um, there's a, a gentleman uh, from Union Bank that taught me a, to look at things as a big picture. Don't look at it myopically. Uh, at that time, um, didn't even didn't even. I did not understand what he meant by not looking at it myopically until later on in my career. But Bill Christensen really told me that, look, if you're looking at a particular problem, you got to step back and take a look at the big picture and look at the, look at the whole profile from a risk standpoint, from profit standpoint, who's affected and what is it really doing? And then you can come up with various solutions Depending, depending, you know, you can pick uh, the appropriate solution for the problem based on, you know, your ass, you know, assertion from other people, right? You got to talk to people and don't look at it on your own with your own eyes. Um, so it's really important that I learned that from Bill early on because I continue to apply that in my as part of my philosophy when it comes to looking at problems. Um, so, uh, you know, I'd like I'd like to, you know, if there is somebody that I looked up to growing uh, in early on in my career would be uh, Bill Christensen. And then same timeline when, when I was at Union Bank, there was a gentleman that um, helped me, uh, help, he, he actually placed me at Union Bank as a senior uh, database administrator. His name was Mark Jennings, who's no longer with us. Uh, he passed away a while back, but he was, he was a mentor naturally. You know, he, he, he didn't just leave me alone. He continued to touch bases with me. He wanted to hear how things were going. And I shared some of the projects that we did at Union Bank. And, and um, he continued to provide guidance. And he was very supportive. He wrote my letters of recommendations at uh, Claremont. And uh, when before going to Claremont, uh, he wrote my, uh, uh, my letter. Um, and he, Mark was the type of person... He was someone that I couldn't call at any time. I'd be on the road. I remember my commute was about an hour and a half to two hours at times. And when when I'm thinking of ideas, whether it's entrepreneurship or challenges at work or a new product, for example, that I want to talk to product managers at Union Bank or uh, or a Western Asset, he was there. He would listen to me and he would provide guidance and he would tell me, he would provide me his advice. And sometimes when he doesn't have any, he would tell me or refer me to somebody that may know. Um, so he's been he's been very um, very helpful. Um, but you know those those two gentlemen are great. But also my wife. You know my wife's been around and supported me for for many many years. Uh, I always tell my team that a, 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 have a strong relationship with your family because you're going to have tough days in the office. You can have tough days outside the house, and the last thing you want is a a uh, unstructured um, home front, right? It's really important to have a strong relationship with your wife and your kids because at the end of the day, when you come home, you want to you want to look forward to coming home, right? You want to have you want to go home to a warm home, you know, to a good you know to a wife with a good relationship with. So it's really important. I mean, I share a story this story all the time. Uh, I had a tough day in the office and I was stuck on the five north uh, and um, I was thinking about the problem and I was, uh, it was really a tough day for me. It was a project that was worth millions and I picked up the phone and I called my wife and I just told her how tough my day was and the last thing, you know, you know, all I needed was a validation that I have, I can come home and she'll take care of me and all she said was, look, come home. I have dinner and, you know, we'll talk. And that was, you know, that was, that was really good. You know, that was helpful and it's been consistent that way. So I just wanted um, to share that those are the three people that, um, three people that I 
really look you know look look up to okay sounds like your wife is a healer <laughs> yeah <laughs> well she's a nurse so yeah it comes with comes yeah. with the role yeah yeah but i also meant mentally but uh, yeah definitely yeah. um uh you know j just like a a sharp detour here like a completely different question i wanted to to ask before uh but you know i've noticed that you're both the CISO and the what was that vp of it i think yeah so and so what would you say about the tension between you know those two roles like what do you feel about the role of a CISO that's actually part of it and in your case i think it's it might be even more complex right yeah it is complex but i think it's you know, we've, we've thought about this, right? I mean, whether a CISO role belongs in technology, but I think the the value there is cohesiveness and integration. I feel like there's also this trust that you establish because there's a, a um, uh, respect between technology and information security, at least in my role, because I'm, you know, I have that background. I have 20 years of infrastructure background. And so when I talk to my team um, in infrastructure about a potential risk or controls that we want to implement, it isn't something that I, I know the impact of the infrastructure, but I don't assume things. But having them understand that I have a backup in infrastructure helps tremendously when we come to the table and we talk about projects and why we're doing it. And Another philosophy of mine is we, we talk about the whys. I don't just go to infrastructure and say, we've identified potential risks near term and long term, and therefore we got to do this, right? Um, I, I take pride in myself in sitting down and explaining the whys and talking to the counterparties and my team and what the, what's the importance of what we're trying to accomplish. And then I try to paint the picture you know, stepping back in the big picture again, talking about what this is doing, what this will accomplish and why this benefits the firm and how it aligns with the overall priorities that we look at. Okay, that's an interesting response, but let me ask you a follow-up question on this. So, sure. Uh, don't you ever feel that you're in a place where you need to choose between like what's like production requirements what's good for the company and then as opposed to what no let me rephrase don't you ever feel that you're in a in a place where you need, you need to choose between it and deliver delivery and information security or compliance i think it's both um understanding that what we what we act on is on the control side we're going to be able to mitigate the risk that could affect the business in operating and delivering the services that we deliver to our customers. But at the same time, <clears throat> understanding that we have a business to run, right? We, 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 we exist because of the performance of the business kind of allows me to, to tailor a solution that still mitigates the risk without affecting business, business as usual. I, I guess my position is that having a technical and infosec background and majoring in business management business administration and having an mba kind of gives me an edge in my role because i can talk financials right i can talk to the cfo and talk to them about potential costs expenses that come with the solution at the same time understand the impact of the expenses to the overall revenue Right, and then you kind of tailor a solution that fits the business. And you know, as as you know, revenue is ebb and flows, and there's fluctuations. And you have to establish priorities, immediate, you know, something that we need to implement now because of the risk profile, or something long term, so that you can align it with the, you know, the 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 the, the business climate. Right. For example, when when COVID came around, right. Um, and my role was we need to continue protecting our users, even if they're working remote. But at the same time, I recognize that we are going to take tremendous hit from the cash flows because of COVID. And therefore, working with the CIO, 
working with the executive committee members and working with chief financial officers about, you know, what are, you know, what are potential uh, risks that we're going to be facing and what can we work with and what's the absolute minimum baseline from a security standpoint we need to work with so that we can allow our users to continue to work from home so that we can service our, our business. Mm-hmm. That okay. makes sense? Yeah, that makes sense. That makes sense. So, yeah, I, I think I, I got that. So what you're saying, in other words, is that, you know, having a uh, background both in IT, DevOps, and, you know, even application security, and and uh, and IT and compliance, so that puts you in a in a better place to make those decisions, and while taking into account like all aspects, to include even financial, financial. Yeah, yeah. It comes to it's it comes with um, at the end of the day, it's business strategy, right? Looking at you know looking at the whole situ- looking at the situation as a whole, yeah. and taking a look at what. You know, what are we trying to accomplish? What is the risk profile? And what what do we have? Uh, you know, what are some of the solutions afforded to us? And it doesn't happen when COVID hit, for example, going back to that time timeline. It happens way ahead of that. You, you, in my role, we always have to, we have a responsibility to think about these potential situations, whether it's disaster recovery, pandemic, uh, or any d- disasters that could affect the business that's outside of your control. And therefore you have to come up with a type of solution that met, meets the, the business, right? Depending on the size of the business. In, in this particular example, just to be more specific, being able for us to operate in a tight, um, a tight revenue based on a pandemic or other disaster, you need to be able to leverage third-party vendors to provide support because third-party vendors can can scale and down, downsize depending on what you guys are, um, are willing to pay for versus looking at capital expenditure by bringing in additional resources that has a long-term impact, right? And not just financially, there has long-term impact to the individuals if the need, there's a, there's a time and place where you got to cut people. In the vendor space, you can now, it's easier to work with, right? You can say right now because of COVID, you know, we, we need to leverage resources, but this is the this is what we need, and this is what we can afford, and this is what we can, you know, with the, the risk profile that we can take on. Therefore, let's work together. Versus going out there and you know, hiring people to be able to support your needs uh, in sh- short notice in this climate is really difficult in the tech space because we don't. There's not a lot of people available out there, so vendor partnership is critical. Correct. And that might actually, you know, uh, be be in correlation to my next question, because I know you've mentioned vendors and, you know, the MBA and the mentors, but I, I always like to ask about the best resources that have helped you along the way in your career path, I mean. Yeah, the best resources, actually, the vendors that I like working with are the ones that are proactive in talking about short-term, long-term business needs. Right, because I always look at us as a small fish in a big in a big pond. Right, it's there are other fishes out there, and a lot of these vendors work with with others and learn about their challenges based on the you know, business challenges and what were the solutions. So, I've always partnered with vendors that are listening and looking at the other industry and similarities and see what helped would help those industry, you know, those companies that could help us, right? Because we don't see that, right? We can look at Gartner and take a look at, you know, um, the real estate market, for example, and what are some of the challenges, the technology, technical challenges that we should be looking at. But I have a day-to-day operations that we work with that um, I need to prioritize the business and my constituents. Vendors at, bring that added value. You know, if I, if I can meet with them on a quarterly basis to talk about what are some of our challenges, where's the business going, what's not working and what's working so that the next iterations of those meetings, they can come back and say, yeah, XYZ company is experiencing the same thing or they don't have to share the exact problem, but they can come back and say, I think this could be a value you might want to look at. And then I'm willing to listen because it's something that 
they they came up with based on some of the feedback that I provided. Mm-hmm. Okay. And I would just add to that that I personally feel that uh, a community also helps. Uh, but that's just my opinion. Um, is there any one common myth about your profession or field that you wanted to debunk? Um, I have to say that um, being you can't just be technical if you're in technology. I think it is important that you understand the business that you're involved with. Um, I think it's important for you to be out there and talking to your constituents, understanding some of their challenges, um, not just challenges from a business standpoint, but some of the challenges uh, with some of the technology that you put in place, some of the security controls that you put in place, because um, it may work for you because you're not part of the business process. You're not part of operations. You're not communicating with the customers, but how do you really know that, it's meeting business expectations or it's helping the business to to be competitive. I've I've always looked at technology as a competitive advantage um, for businesses out there. Only if the head of technology or the info security officer is meeting with their constituents on a regular basis to talk about how is it going? You know, how is how's the phishing out there? I mean when you VPN in, you know, what are some of the challenges that you experience? You know, is, is multi-factor authentication working? Can we enhance the process better? Um, there was a recent situation where they wanted to be able to share files externally. And we, we need to come up with a solution that meets that business need. And even though we have, we have a current technology, apparently it doesn't work or they were not aware of it. So I take it upon myself to make sure that either myself or someone from my team communicates it so that we can, we can show them that we have the solution. And that's, that's critical in providing value to the business. So yeah, my, my, I guess the common myth is you can't just be good at application development, infrastructure management, troubleshooting, infosec. You know, you can be the best at being able to track down malware and mitigate the risk but if if you're not if you don't understand the business in which you're operating you're you're not going to succeed or someone else will um, mm-hmm. someone else who's savvy and wants to learn more to, uh, about the business will um will uh, you know will, will add more value to the business yeah and you know speaking about challenges what would you say the main challenges nowadays that occupy most CISOs? Is this around like the supply chain or is it around anything else in your opinion? Um, The constant threat. I think more and more, if you listen to the news that it seems that the frequency and the gravity of a uh, a cybersecurity incident is huge. And And it isn't just affecting businesses, it affects the customers and the reputational risk. Um, but we've known that, right? But the challenge in, 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 in my role is even though um, you are coming in and you're adding value and that it's you're protecting the firm and there's no incident uh, and there's no event because of the controls that you put in place, it's hard to, um, um, it's hard to share the value of infosec it's hard to be able to justify some of the costs that we're paying for because we've not had any incidents but you don't want it you don't want it to get to that point right you want to make sure that you're able to communicate the value um and 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 show them that it's it's worth the investment and that you're mitigating the risks and therefore we've not had any incidents so that's my that's the biggest challenge and i've spoken to a few few of my um, uh, peers and that seemed to be a common theme is especially in a tight marketplace justifying some of the costs um, necessary to protect the firm has been very difficult Mm -hmm. and and i know we've you've mentioned in our previous talk about you know dealing i think dealing with the eisenhower matrix if i remember correctly that's urgent versus important, right? Mm-hmm. Something along those lines. Yeah. Uh, 
so you're if i understand correctly you're trying to be more focused on uh on what's important and 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 by dealing with those items thus reducing the urgent matters as time goes by does that make sense yeah it's just my philosophy when it comes to time management right um you know putting together an eisenhower matrix um basically the, the top left quadrant is your urgent most important and then the top right is your important but not urgent not urgent yeah and then the bottom two quartile bottom left is your urgent but not important it's someone you know someone's urgency um but it's it's important for you to work with with those individuals and then the top the bottom right quartile are things that i think about doing in the future you know it's not urgent it's not important but it's something that it's in the back of mind something that's going to come whether near you know uh, in, in the near future and or long term yeah and it helps um I, i have that on a weekly basis it shows what i've accomplished it's easy to to be able to measure in in my role there's nothing tangible at times that you can use to measure your success but when you take a look at you know the eisenhower matrix you can see that hey you know there are things that we've accomplished and there's actually a lot in retrospect so that helps helps validate some of the things that we've done and helps you steer the ship moving forward and i focus on what's important not just for you but for your team and having touched a bit about your weekly routine is there any daily routine you could share with us yeah um i uh, a good story when i was at uh, western asset my boss was a pilot he had his own plane he didn't uh, he didn't own it but he had a cessna and it's a small plane um but my first few months he wanted to show off his plane and and i said sure i'll come join you and um i saw his plane and but it took a while for us to fly and i was very eager i was excited to fly but he was looking at his notes and checking things off um and i finally asked him you know what is that and he said it's his pre-flight checklist and it resonated and i continue since that time i've i've always put together what what i call a pre-flight checklist every morning i have a routine um that that i follow before i start my day i mean i i don't follow it every day but i try my best but i noticed that those days when i don't follow my pre-flight um i have a, i have a tougher time managing my day because i didn't get i didn't get a chance it almost serves like a um a meditation practice because you're going through your normal routine you have a cup of coffee you're looking at your alerts you're looking at your dashboards uh you're looking at your tickets and um you were thinking of what is the strategy for the day and what you you know what didn't work yesterday and so it's like it serves as a retrospective you start thinking about what didn't work and what you need to improve upon as a person both on a personal and professional level and then you execute on those and you continue to learn you know as um it's another misconception right it, you don't get to a point where you learn everything it's so it's a continue uh, you continue to learn right it's a learning process it's ever uh, ever changing environment that you need to keep uh, keep up sure and uh, are you familiar with the book called the miracle morning because it speaks no, no. specifically about about that daily routine no who um, what's the name of the book it's called the miracle morning uh by a guy named i think his name is hal helrod i think hal elrod yeah mm. hal elrod yeah with an e ah, i should check that out yeah yeah i mean it, it speaks specifically about what you just described so it's very interesting yeah um yeah i think it's really important to have a routine and um then also you know every weekend you don't you know people say you you need to take some time off and not think about work but i think it's important to have a retrospective and saturday morning routine having my cup of coffee i always think about what i what i did that week and what worked and what didn't work again thinking about what i shouldn't have done and what i should have done and that prepares me for the next week as as i uh, as i come into work and uh, be a better person and and know what strategy to execute yeah i i totally understand you know for me i have like the 
unwinding period uh, around Friday afternoon and then Sunday evening I start going over my head in my head like about you know the the week to come and I start planning so I, I, yeah. I understand that sentiment one last one last thing about the retrospective that I want to share is that I it allows me to think about what my team did and what they accomplished and and I, I go back on conversations I had with my teams and my peers and most of the time I, I always remember the good things, right? And I, and um, at times I would text them. I would send them a message just saying, "Hey, great job. Um, just wanted you to know that I'm, you know, happy about the results." Uh, even the peer that um, may may not um, who may not report to me, knowing that they're going through something, just sending a message saying, "Hey, look, I'm here." Let's tackle your issues next week. I'm, I'm going to be available. I'll, I'll spend some time. I'll carve out time in my calendar so that you and I can sit down and work on it. Those go a long way. And then it's reciprocity. The things that you get back, the commitment, the dedication from the team um, is tenfold because they, they know that you appreciate it. They know that you're there. You recognize. And, and it, it doesn't just go by the wayside. Yeah. Yeah. It pays dividend. I understand. Yeah. Right. Um, anything you can share about uh, trends around budget planning, like changes from previous years, let's just, you know, assume 2019, 2020, as opposed to 2021. Do you think, you know, the budget uh, planning would look different here? Um, I think, in my opinion only, right? And like, it's hard to use 2020 as a trend because of COVID. But if, if we take 2020... Um, off the table and look at the 2018, 2019, there's this uptrend in investments, knowing um, knowing the, the risk profile of the company and what we need to do in InfoSec. Um, but there's also opportunities and efficiencies as far as data center to the cloud migration. I think that there's this misconception that cloud is expensive. There's a lot of opportunity to scale on the cloud. It's not, it's not static. You can you can increase and decrease your capacity. Therefore, it lends in, from, from an expense management standpoint, it actually puts IT in the competitive edge um, because they're able to manage their budget better. But from a, going back to your question, from a budgetary standpoint, I'm seeing it's not, it's not a, you know, the, the, the trend is not high, right? It's, the angle is not high, but there is some uptick in, in cybersecurity investment for sure. Uh, okay, great. Uh, you know, and switching gears here, and just uh, I want to speak a bit about vendors. If you can put yourself in the shoes of a vendor, just for a moment, what's the one promise you make to yourself that not to ever do? That I um, that I would make the investment without thinking about the business value, right? That I will always make the best decision in the. Uh, the decision um, that meets business needs. I always prioritize the business. And, in, other, um, in other words, you wouldn't offer a service or a product that you don't feel would provide value to the customer? Exactly. exactly. I mean, we, we don't go after the shining object, right? Um, there has to be, and even if we go for it, there has to be statistics and data to support it. Um, you know, we, we uh, there's this... Uh, best of breed um, products out there, but you also have to be mindful of where the company is and the size of the company. I, I can look at Cisco, for example, and you know I've supported Cisco for many, many years, but if you're working for a small organization, it may not fit the, the financial models, right? Um, and Cisco is more complex, right? It's advanced. Uh, it's more complex, therefore you may require the you know certain certain resources that hold certifications in Cisco to be able to support that environment. And you I may get lucky, I might find that resource, I may not. So it really depends on what the business is doing, the risk profile, the revenue expectations, and and the market in which they're operating uh, before I make a decision on the type of technologies and vendors that we work with. Mm-hmm. Um, 
Okay, um, so, you know, it goes back to other answers I've gotten from your peers. Basically, I think almost everyone told me the same thing, that vendors need to do their research before they they cold call you. And right. Then, yeah, and then, you and know. They need, to, they need to have worked in that specific industry as well. That's the challenge, right? Yeah. Um, because vendors are for, and I recognize the situation, right, their position. Um, they're expected to meet certain quotas, right? And and they you know they they cast a wide net, but and maybe that that works for a mid tier of Fortune 500 companies, but for a smaller company like um, Genesis Capital, that doesn't work because we need to be very mindful of what we're trying to accomplish, and we need to make sure that it's in line with mm -hmm. the business growth and strategy. Sure. Uh, and, you know, touching a bit about vendors, can you share maybe a story about the most annoying sales pitch that you've encountered? Yeah, first and foremost, it's it's great to work with vendors. Um, you, they, they always have a lot to share when, I'm ha when I have the time. And it, unfortunately, I don't have the time to sit there and talk mm -hmm. about, um, you know, this, the, uh, the, the products and the services that they offer. And I truly believe that we're in an industry where there's a lot of vendors that offer a lot of value that we could benefit from. Um, but there are, are there are times where vendors would call me and say, "Yeah, so and so referred me to you, and told me that you know you, you should look into our services." And then you dig deeper, you find out that they weren't really referred. You know, they're just they do their due diligence and they go to LinkedIn and recognize that I'm connected to so and so, and therefore using that name. Um, they certainly can do that, um, but um, yeah, I just don't. I want I want them to talk about the company, the, you know, the product and services. And let's focus on that, and we don't need to, you know, name drop or use somebody else's name just to get your foot in the door. That that's my biggest pet peeve, because I certainly wouldn't want my name thrown out there and say, yeah, Caesar said to give you a call because you worked with them and you should listen to our pitch and. Um, I wouldn't do that, right? I mean, I would have done that before, but I would have a courtesy call first and let the individual, my peer, know that, hey, I think that Ben, you know, Ben, you, you should talk to Ben. Um, I'll, I'll do a warm introduction and then I'll walk away. But that's how I, I conduct business because it's a trust, right? It's all about trust. It has to be built yeah. on trust. Especially in this space, right? Yeah, exactly. So now that we've established what is it that you're, you know, not too enthused about with vendors, what mm -hmm. is it that you are looking for in a vendor? I, I can only assume, but uh, I'd like to hear it from you. Yeah, I'd, I'd like I'd like to work with vendors that, um, I mentioned this earlier, I want them to listen. I want them to do their own research about our company and our situation and our products. Um, and if they do fit, um, our needs, I'd prefer to work with vendors that have their own internal resources because um, we deal with a lot of financial transactions and PII and we want to make sure that that's one last thing that I worry about. I want to make sure that the vendor I'm working with have resources internally that if they establish a subcontract or if they sub the, the work to someone else that I can be, um, I don't have to worry about what who has access to our data and who doesn't. We go through our vendor due diligence and we, we onboard vendor based on the, um, the type of data that they will have access to and the type of services that they provide. Um, therefore, it's easier to manage when you're working with the vendors with a, a you know, deep resource and they have the expertise in that space. Mm -hmm. Okay. And so what would you say, uh, is there any tip you could provide on how vendors can connect to you online in a non-intrusive manner then? Emails work, um, cold calls work. I mean, I don't I don't normally answer my phones, but once in a while I do, but emails do work, right? Um, effective, you know, effective pitch is really important. I mean, that's not gonna go away. I think that's the number one way of reaching to us. Um, maybe holding, um, you know, virtual uh, webinars to talk about, um, particular uh, challenges out there in the industry and when what vendors are doing and then inviting CISOs like me uh, to attend and hear about, yeah, 
you know, I agree. I have those challenges and it's good to hear that there's a subject matter expert from that vendor who's representing um, that company. And I'd love to talk to them about, about it further. I think that's what one thing that I've seen to be effective uh, uh, for me at least. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, is there any, any CISOs out there that you look up to that you wanted to share? Yeah, that's easy. I mean, I don't know a lot of CISOs out there, but there's one person that I look up to. His name is Phil Venables. He's the uh, previous CISO at uh, Goldman Sachs, very much been a very uh, supportive in um, my role as a CISO at Genesis Capital. Um, he's uh, he's no longer with Goldman Sachs, but uh, yeah, he's uh, he's been great to work with. He's very active on LinkedIn and he and I, uh, still connect and uh, um, you know, it's, it's good to, to be able to work with them on specific issues that we're facing with. Good, good. Uh, thank you for that. And uh, yeah, I might be able to link you up with a, you know, a team of peers of Caesar <laughs> if, if you'd be more than, if you'd be interested in. Yeah, um, that'd be great. Great. So is there any one place where our listeners can connect with you online? LinkedIn is, um, the best way to connect with me again, I'm not very active, but, um, depending on the, the, again, how you connect, um, it has to make sense, right? The connection has to make sense. You can imagine how many connections I get a lot of, a lot of vendors connect with me about their services. Um, I would say the success rate there is about one out of 10, right? It, it really depends. I don't just like connections for no reason it has to make sense. Yeah. You know, I found out that for the past probably year or so, I, I get like at least five to eight connection requests a day from companies that that are that want to do our uh, lead gen and cold calling. And I'm just wondering if they're so successful, how come, you know, we're not, I'm, I'm, I'm not approving any of those because it just, you know, it's the same tune time and time again. But yeah, I understand your sentiment. Um, yes. What's the mo single most important thing in your career? Sorry, I was stuck there. I have to say the people, the team, the people, the, uh, the people in my team. Um, I would not have accomplished uh, a lot of the successes in my role. I would not be here um, if it weren't for the teams that supported me. I mean, the unsung heroes. Um, I, uh, I'm, I always thank them. And if I have an opportunity to get them in front of our executives, I do because they are a very important part of uh, my career. And I've worked with, I've been blessed to work with great people in the past, uh, great mentors, great bosses and peers. And, uh, I have to say that people are your most important asset. And second to that is trust, it's trust to, from those people those people, um, they need to be able to trust you. Um, and so you need to be able to deliver what you've, uh, what's expected and don't commit unless you know that you can accomplish it. So yeah, mm -hmm. the people, and my, I love my team and, and, um, and it's, it's been great and I'm, I'm blessed. Okay. Uh, great. And, um, a couple of quick, uh, questions before we wrap this up. I know, uh, you know, it's getting, a, getting pretty late in the afternoon now. Uh, yeah. if you had unlimited funds, what would you do with your life? I travel the world with my wife. That's my passion. I love learning about other cultures. I want to educate myself about the culture. I want to learn about the food, the people, the, the language and just appreciate, you know, what, uh, you know, what that place offers. And it's not, not just a short one week stint here and there. I want to be able to immerse myself and learn about people and, and meet, meet people and learn about their culture. That's, that's what I would do if I had unlimited funds and then give back to the community. Um, I would, uh, I would, especially places where, in our local community and giving back to them and um, mm -hmm. and finally probably kick off the giving wall which is an organization that i've i've been thinking about starting and that i'd love to start that in the future 
And what was that called? The Giving Wall? Yeah, The Giving Wall. Um, I came up with that name because I read a book about college students having this wall in their university and they would leave books and jackets that they no longer need mm. that they've read for other students. It's like a community. And, um, and that's what I want to do with the giving wall. If you look at your closet, your jacket closet, you probably have yourself, you probably have not, not to judge you, but a lot of people probably yeah. have jackets that they haven't used for years and it's been mm -hmm. sitting there. And I can tell you, you know, with our homeless uh, problem out there, they can use that jacket that you no longer need or someone on the other side of the world can use it, but you have it. And it's just sitting there collecting dust and it's taking, it's taking space in your house. You have books that you've read that you've gained knowledge from that you no longer need, that you don't need as a reference, that you can impart to somebody that's getting into the industry and could use that book. Um, and others that look around you, if you be mindful, you'll notice that you have things in your closet, in your cabinet, in your drawer, in your desk that you haven't touched, if not months, years, that someone else could probably uh, could use because they need it. So that's kind of the aspect. That's kind of the idea of the giving wall is how do we give it to the less fortunate people, right? Mm -hmm. And that, uh, so in what way would that be different from, let's say, goodwill? It's, it's established, so the giving wall will establish a, a framework by which people can do it easily. If I ask you right now, what would you do to be able to give to the give to the uh, the goodwill you know maybe you know but the majority of the people don't know the process right for me what is ubiquitous it's your phone and what you can do with that phone is tremendous you can take a picture of the item and you can reach someone in south africa for example or or a third world country that also believe it or not may have a phone and they could see it and they need it and establishing a way for that item from your desk to actually make it in South Africa. Mm, okay. And that's, 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 that's the problem we're trying to solve. Right? And that's because a challenge, one, right? That's a challenge. That is a challenge. It's, it's going to be the infrastructure, the framework, the organizations that are willing to be part of it, like UPS, DHL, yeah. FedEx. And how do we do that on a consistent basis so that you have this, this belt that runs every day that people Across can the put, globe. put it on that, yeah, put it on that that belt and you can see it run across the globe and you don't even think about it, right? And vice versa, people that may not be less fortunate, but may see something that they can use from that giving wall, may want it, right? Not that they can't afford it, but they might see that someone's giving it up and I have a need for it, I'd like to, I'd like to have it. It could be a book like, um, that you've been wanting to read, or it could be an item that somebody says we don't no longer need, but you have an immediate need for it. Again, you put it on that conveyor belt and it just, mm -hmm. it's running. Yeah, it gets and to its destination. This is, this, is, this is what will empower that, which is the phone. Yeah. And I, I, I'm not familiar with, because I haven't really spent a lot of time, it's, a, it's an idea, but I haven't spent a lot of time in how, you know, goodwill works or, the um, you know the, the the Red Cross and others, but I feel like this is in addition to that, or it could be complementary. It could be the front end to those organizations. Well, definitely hit me up uh, when you want to talk more about this. Uh, it's interesting. Um, um, yeah, I'm not sure how to solve that uh, that mobilizing piece there. That's the challenge, I think. But um, yeah. Would love to be to be involved in, even as a sounding board for that. That'd be great. Uh, great. Thanks for that, Ben. Uh, one final question: Have you read or listened to anything recently that has inspired you? Yeah, the the uh, the most recent book that really inspired me is "Let My People Go Surfing" by uh, Yvonne Chouinard from Patagonia. It's uh, it talks about the story of Patagonia and how it started. And then it gets into the current business framework or business philosophy of, you know, uh, making reliable products that are recyclable and being environmental friendly and still make, you know, still run a business, but socially responsible. You, you can have both. 
yeah doesn't you don't necessarily run a business and not think about um, giving back to the community in which you're you're operating you know you can do both and a good example is they part of the you know, sale of the product goes back to uh, uh, to, uh, to the community mm -hmm. okay i'll check this one out let my people go surf it's, it's a good book might it's life-changing okay um uh... So that's by Yvonne, not sure how to pronounce it. So. Chenard. Chenard, okay. Got yeah. It. yeah. Thanks. Noted. You're welcome. Well, it was great chatting with you, Caesar. Thank you so much for taking the time and joining me in this episode of the podcast. Uh, hopefully, you know, uh, um, some of your answers might resonate with some of the listeners here. Uh, I definitely learned a lot about you. And uh, thank you again for taking the time and enjoy the rest of the afternoon. Thank you, Ben. It's been my pleasure. Really appreciate it. It's great to be here. Same.